You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning. Thank you so much for being here this morning. My microphone broke just before, uh, just as the service was starting, so these guys got me hooked up, but it may take a few minutes to get it cued just right, this deep, resonant voice that I have, you know. It's problematic. That's the problem. I don't have a deep, resonant voice. Well, I uh, hope you saw the prayer request on the screen that David did not reference, praying for the Calverts. We're so grateful for his ministry among us, Pastor David, and they have an additional challenge with Rosie being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes recently. So please pray for them. Pray for (laughs) grace, peace, margin. Pray for all of it. Just pray that the Lord will um, comfort them with his presence and encourage them uh, with his grace. And I do want to reiterate, those of you who are relatively new to grace, please come back and join us for lunch. If you see Jeff Kelly, the one who did the announcements this morning, please tell him on your way out. You can find him in the lobby. Uh, Just tell him, hey, we're going to stay if you had not already signed up to stay. But even if you didn't sign up, please stay. I think all of our elders and I think all of our staff will be here. There's Jeff. Uh, We'll be here this morning. So we'd love to have you join us. Well, this past summer, uh, I've mentioned this off and on, but Allison and I attended a First Things conference in New York in the shadow of the Empire State Building. It was right in the heart of the city. Allison was able to enjoy the evening meals and the evening talks and panels that they had on Friday and Saturday nights, but I also attended a session that lasted, actually there were four different sessions, discussions all day long on Saturday that were structured for group discussion around assigned readings from Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov. If you have never read Brothers Karamazov, don't do it unless you absolutely have to. It's worth it if you read it, you know, but you've got to hang in there. It's a tough read, but an invaluable one if you hang and you have a little help as you're going through the book. So we we discussed some thoughts from Karamazov to the great Roman orator Cicero who lived in the last days of the Roman Republic to more contemporary Christian thinkers such as Sir Roger Scruton and Russell Hedinger. And as I speak about this for these next few minutes, please be patient. You may wonder what relevance this has with the third chapter of Titus, but I think you'll see by the end of the morning. First things exist as an organization to engage both believers and society in the public square with a Christian worldview. Well, that was the mission when Richard John Newhouse began the magazine in 1990. But increasingly, the articles encouraged the church to understand and affirm its identity as 
ministry in the public square, but not so much always in the public square making the arguments. But it's ministry, as we'll see in a little bit. While the goal is to equip believers to engage social issues theologically, intellectually, and philosophically, there's an increasing awareness that Jesus articulated one of the best apologetic arguments when he told his disciples in John 13, 35, by this all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Although the discussions at the conference were rather free-flowing, it was extremely profitable for me because that's the way my mind works anyway. It's all over the place. There, there were three takeaways from the weekend that nobody said, this is it, one, two, three, this is what you want to get. But these were the three takeaways. I briefly, briefly referenced these here or there. Um, but these have, takeaways have become more and more meaningful to me. And this is a good time to think about them. The first is this. Evil thoughts are the cause of all evil in the world. That's, that especially from Dostoevsky. He makes this claim in so many words. And look, we know that the fall is the cause of all evil in the world. But we also acknowledge that Jesus said... When we lust in our hearts, we're guilty of adultery. But what if person A hates person B and never acts on that hatred? In fact, person A is always kind to person B. How is that hatred, those evil thoughts, how are those evil thoughts impacting or causing evil in the world? Well, there are a lot of different ways it can work, but here's just one way. Suppose person C comes to person A and says, you know, I really hate person D. She just drives me out of my mind. Person A is kind of like, get it? I know exactly how you feel. Well, person C is a lot different than person A and person C acts on it. When you think... You think about people in negative ways. It's going to impact the way you interact and the way others interact with them. If nothing else, we can acknowledge the need to submit to the Holy Spirit to discipline, asking Him to discipline our thought life, especially as it impacts the church family. Another important principle for me from the conference was the beauty of repentance and forgiveness to which you would say, surely this was not an epiphany for you. Hopefully not. No, it wasn't. But it is easy, is it not, to forget the basic tenets of the Christian life. In fact, we spend so much time justifying what we do, what we think, what we say. We spend so much time justifying our views in juxtaposition to others' views that we forget how beautiful it is for God to confront us with our sin and to repent and be forgiven. Maybe some of the most difficult words to say from the heart are, I was wrong. I'm sorry. I'm not talking about, I was wrong, but I'm always wrong. I'm so sorry. That I have offended you. But to say it honestly. 
I was wrong. I'm sorry. If you think that's not tough for me, just remember the last time you knew in your heart you needed to say those words to a roommate or a spouse or a friend or parents or a child or to someone at work. I was wrong. I'm sorry. The title of our Titus series is The Grace of Godliness. We do not become godly so that we can be forgiven. Rather, we are forgiven, and through God's grace, we become godly. And a whole lot of the New Testament teaching about church life is how we treat one another, how we think about one another, what we say about one another, how we treat one another. Way more than you think. And because we're scattered from Fort Bragg to Garner almost, we don't live with each other in that community, but we do live in smaller communities very much so. And how we treat one another has a lot to do with confession, repentance, forgiveness. And thankfully, this cycle is a constant for the one who walks with Jesus. The last takeaway from that conference was the blessing and witness of proper authority. Civil authority, church authority, and family authority. Americans have a complicated relationship with authority, right? The ones who defend law enforcement and military the loudest are the same ones demanding freedom all the time. The ones who despise civil authority exert a social control over their opponents that is breathtaking. Rusty Reno, who is the editor of First Things, said he has hopes for our land going forward because of the recognition of the need for proper authority. It's the first time I'd heard anybody say that in a long time. And in fact, I thought, hmm, I'm not sure I agree. In so saying, he expects that Americans will ultimately understand the warning that Jean-Becca Elstein shared in a 1999 article titled Democratic Authority at Century's End. Think about this, quote, authority is not tyranny. Who do you think you are to be telling me what I need to do? Authority is not tyranny. Indeed, the resort to tyranny is a sign that legitimate authority has broken down and given way to violence. The alternative to authority is not some freeform utopia, but coercion, domination, violence, and unacceptable methods and systems of manipulating persons. Close quote. Once again, what does any of this have to do with Titus? The short answer is this. Today's passage is about proper authority. In the church. You will recall that the Apostle Paul began this letter to his young protege, Titus, by instructing him to establish churches on the island of Crete. And the first thing he was to do was to make sure that there were elders who led the flock and protected the flock against a false gospel, a gospel that adds works to faith in Jesus as the entire big picture of salvation. It's not faith in Jesus alone, but it is faith in Jesus plus good works that saves a person. Now, Titus said, don't let that happen. You need to have elders to lead the church, protect the church, take care of the church. 
As we'll see in today's text, good works are commanded and expected believers for believers, but they follow salvation. They always follow <clears throat> salvation. They don't bring salvation or keep salvation for us because we can never be good enough. Fortunately, Jesus was good enough. Coming full circle at the end of Paul's letter to Titus, the elders were to assure the purity of the gospel by leading the church to seek restoration of those who taught falsely, but also to be willing to exercise church discipline for those who persisted in dividing the church with a false gospel, a gospel other than justification by faith. So our text today is Titus Chapter 3, verses 8 to 15, but for the context, I'm going to read the first seven verses of Titus 3, then we'll work our way through the remainder of the text. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, and I will ask you if you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. Paul says to Titus in these words that Ricky preached so ably last week, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. Gosh, does this feel like today in our land? Hated by others and hating one another. It's not who we are anymore. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you and be seated. Well, as I've already uh, said, Ricky Lee has done an outstanding job in his exposition of Titus. Helping us to understand not only the way that God designed his church to function, but the truth that undergirds, that is the foundation of all that we do. I feel I need to say this for those of you who are relatively new at Grace. Next Sunday morning, I'm going to be in Banner Elk, North Carolina, where a lot of people will be helping to celebrate George Wright's 20 years of service at Mount Calvary Baptist Church there in um, Banner Elk, where my daughter, our daughter and her husband also uh, serve on staff. George and I served together at Team Valley Ranch for 15 years, so it's a privilege for me to help lead the celebration next week, and our elders have graciously allowed me to do that. I say all of this because it's a really rare thing uh, for me to be out of the pulpit for three out of four Sundays, which I am. Part of that is because Ricky was given an increased role in the book of Titus, and we have all been blessed, but then this has come up as well. 
So thank God it's not about me. And thank God we have so many able men to full, uh, fill the pulpit here at Grace. Next week, you'll be blessed by Dr. Calvert leading us back to the Psalms. And my intent is to stay in the Psalms one last week on November 21. But for now, Titus 3, 8 and 9. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Isn't it interesting how many times Paul says, be confident in what the teaching of Scripture is. Be confident. Don't let people shake your confidence. Insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, <coughs> genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. For they are unprofitable and worthless. It would not require a several-week in-depth Bible study to sense Paul informing the believers that good works are profitable to advance the kingdom. Division in the body, on the other hand, is unprofitable because it halts kingdom growth. I cannot tell you how many times I have seen in 23 years here at Grace, the Lord blessing People come into Christ, they hear the gospel, they believe, and then contention starts, division comes, all of that stops. And when that is over, sometimes years later, then the spiritual growth starts. But that's what he's saying here. When the Lord is in the midst of his people and there is unity, the kingdom advances. When there's division, a lot of that work stops. So division in Crete came because some sought to make adherence to the law a part of salvation. And so someone might say, oh, I am so thankful for Jesus, <coughs> the Messiah. He came to save us from our sins. And when we believe that he died in our place, we're saved. To which someone might reply, yes, it is good to believe in Jesus. But tell me about your family lines, brother. Tell me, do you wash your hands in the ceremonial way before you eat? Because all of these are important in our salvation. Maybe you trust Jesus alone, but I want to perform enough good works to assure my salvation, ensure my salvation. Now, this is not like James taught that our faith is evidenced by our good works, but this was my good works are a part of making sure that I'm saved. And it's a tricky thing to keep right in your mind, isn't it? If you're living a sinful life and there's no conviction in your heart, how, how is it possible that you're saved? But if you're constantly thinking, I just better do this to make sure that I'm saved, that's not good either. And th these legalists were confusing people uh, the believers on Crete. Isn't it interesting that Paul said in so many words that if you have trusted Jesus as, your, as a sacrifice for your sins, then you absolutely will do good works. But don't you dare try to do good works to make sure that you'll go to heaven. Good works alone will never get us there. 
nor will trust in Jesus and good works as trusting for my salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 tells us the order of salvation and the good works. You know this text. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, those who want to say there are contradictions in Scripture would say, hey, verses 9 and 10 are contradictory. But if you understand, no, not at all. You can't be saved by good works. But if you are saved, you will absolutely walk in good works, works that God has prepared for you. Caring for others, being a good citizen, Encouraging brothers and sisters, being a good employer or employee, a good husband, a wife, a parent, child, a friend, all are encapsulated in Paul's admonition for good works. No wonder he says in Titus that good works are profitable. Galatians 6.10 gives us the priority for good works. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. The Christian commitment to do good works for all people was one of the reasons that Christianity spread as it did in the first three centuries. It was expected that families and tribes would take care of their own poor, but the Christians took care of everyone's poor. It frustrated some of the Roman emperors. They're like, they take care of all of us. And we really, it's difficult to persecute them because they do so many good things for people. One of the ways that they made an impression on the people was that when a girl was born into, a little baby girl was born into a Roman family, the parents would often take that child and leave it at a place outside the city and expose the child. It was called the practice of exposure. They would take that baby and leave it there to be exposed by the elements. And the baby would die of exposure to the elements or <clears throat> starvation if only the wild animals didn't know exactly where that spot was. And they always circled around that area waiting to devour the babies. The Romans didn't know about what it meant to be a child. They were expected to be adults from the very beginning. That's not a good thing, guys. You don't want your children to be children at 28, but you do want them to be children when they're little. Don't make them be a little adults running around the house. That's what the Romans did. Man, they, they didn't know the, that concept, nor did they know the concept of spinster. They didn't know of any older women who were unmarried because there were so few older women, or there were so few women of marriageable age. Most little baby girls were taken out and exposed, as were defective or, or weakly baby boys. Christians would go out there and they'd take those babies. They'd take them home and raise them for their own. People took notice. 
They loved folks that others didn't. They loved little babies that were too expensive for Romans to have. The dowry associated with little baby girls. Just think about it. Another thing that Christians did was that they would fast one day a week and use their lunch money to feed the poor. Now you, you know, we, we, we're paid once a week or once a month. But people needed money every day and they barely had enough money to live on, many of the poorer people. But the Christians would fast not only to improve their spiritual condition, but also to help others who were hungry to be able to eat. People took notice. And this, all this was done in addition to first taking care of their own people. Good works were not just passive as in not cursing or not going to the Colosseum to watch slaves and others be slaughtered. But it was active, helping those in need and doing good to all. And then in Titus 3, 9, false teaching distracted from God's ordained plan for our good works is stated in Ephesians 2.10. It led to unprofitable and ungodly division. And so how to respond? Titus 3.10-11. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Now, what I'm going to say over the next 10 minutes or so, 10, 15 minutes max, could easily be spread out over two to three months. Church discipline, which is clearly indicated here, is a difficult topic, not for the least of which reason is our love affair with autonomy and our suspicion of authority. Without proper authority, we lose our moorings And run the risk of losing meaningful community. Frankly, there is no lasting, meaningful Christian community divorced from godly authority. Titus began with a call for elders to lead the church and protect the purity of the gospel. He ends with elders taking the lead on matters of church discipline. But the entire church is called to participate in the process. Now, you don't see all of that right here. I'm going to explain that in just a minute. Elders derive their authority from Scripture. But that authority must be affirmed by the congregation if it's to mean anything. Look, if you're leading a marching band... You don't see many marching bands anymore, but those of you who are older know what I'm talking about. You're out there leading the band, you know, you're doing your thing. And the music begins to fade in the background. And after a while, you look around and nobody's following anymore. Who are you leading? You're not leading anybody if nobody's following. While the elders are called to protect the purity of the gospel, they must do so in tandem with the entire congregation. It's not the elders and everybody else. It's all of us together. It's just the elders take the lead. But the congregation, if the congregation doesn't affirm, then 
the elders are not leading. The deacons so closely work with the elders on most of the really important decisions now that we have as a church going forward. And also, even on matters of church discipline, which we've only done one time in all of my years. And by the way, speaking of deacons, be praying. We're going to be presenting a slate of deacons to bring on uh, in the near future. And then probably in the not too distant future, we're going to be bringing elders onto the elder board as well. So does Titus 3.11 refer only to issues that challenge the clarity of the gospel? To false teaching, or is this also a warning to those who create divisions of other kinds within the church? Well, maybe the best way to answer that is to think about the context in which that was written, and then we can apply it to our day. Um, <clears throat> when Titus was written, if you didn't like the way elders led Harmony Baptist Church, you couldn't walk away and go join New Harmony Baptist Church. To walk away from the church was to walk away from Jesus. Unless there were major doctrinal issues that led to false teaching or major behavioral issues that hurt the church's testimony, you had to work it out with each other. You just had to find a way to get along. To elevate a secondary issue, though, in our day, to the status of salvation or fellowship with other believers is a, is a serious disruption to church life. And we are all tempted to quarrel. So let us all take care. The only model worse than a church that is too eager to practice church discipline is one that won't practice it at all. Church discipline has no teeth apart from church members acknowledging the elders' authority and the voluntary submission of all of us to one another in church life and community. Titus 3, 10 to 11 does not come close to telling us all we need to know about church discipline. In fact, we can only piece together a full understanding of this practice and this discipline by looking at several passages and recognizing that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. To use another math analogy, for interpreting scripture, it's very easy to put two and two together and come up with five, six, or seven. We can do that, right? But if you don't work at putting two and two together, you're going to have some kind of weird theology. We have to understand Scripture as a whole to get to the various doctrines that guide us and direct us in walking in the truth. So here are five principles about church discipline. And these are not exhaustive, nor are all the New Testament texts about church discipline listed here. <laughs> but this puts us in the right direction. And by the way, I'm just going to say this. For home group this week, a lot of you that meet on Sunday will be meeting here tonight for Grace Matters. And some of others of you might not have home group this week because of Grace Matters tonight. Others will. But I've written extensive notes, not, 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 not exhaustive, but extensive notes 
on church discipline for home group leaders. And I may put this on Faith Life later in the week, a link to where you can get to it. Uh, But if your home group leader after you meet does not send you those notes, ask him to. Please say, would you please send me those leaders notes and you'll see how the sausage is. No, not, not really. It's not a good analogy. All right, first, the pattern of church discipline is given to us in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. And it's affirmed right here in Titus Chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. But that's really all it is. It's just a pattern. We've got the idea that false teaching is certainly an issue that needs to be dealt with. But in Matthew 18, it's just talking about sin from against one brother, from one brother to another. Jesus didn't give us all the teaching about church discipline in Matthew 18, but he did give us the pattern. And it seems clear that the church used this pattern. He said that to be outside the church in Matthew 18, this is serious. To be outside the church is to be apart from Christ. Ow. Second, and that's explained more fully in the notes. The distinction between authority over believers and unbelievers. The church has authority over believers God has authority over unbelievers. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 13, especially verses 9 to 13. Now, 1 Corinthians 5 is a very important text for church discipline. It could have been included in a number of these points, but I chose to put it here. Because Paul said that it's not the church's business to judge the world. No, that's what we do as individuals on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, right? Really? Really? Who are you judging? The world, it's not our business to judge the world. Paul said, don't associate with one who is a believer, who claims to be a believer. And as as my mom would say in the past, sashays in the church on Sunday morning, just lives like the devil. You can't allow that to go on, Paul said. We are given responsibility to take care of of one another in those ways. We're called to maintain the purity of the church. God's going to take care of the world. Perfection is not required in the church. That's the beauty of repentance and forgiveness. But open and unrepentant sin must be addressed. Third, the role of the elders and the role of the congregation in church discipline. Now, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2 that a majority of the Corinthian church members had agreed to bring discipline against an individual who was living in open sin. Now, this is a big deal. A person who is living any way he or she wants to continues to come to church, and this process has been followed. One person goes, two or three go, and then you bring them before the church. To the best of my understanding, if a person starts living in really bad sin, should we go after them? Absolutely. If they walk away from the church, absolutely. But I don't know that it's our responsibility to bring them before the church. They're not going to show up anyway. But for those who say, I can live any way I want to, and this is fine, and you just got to accept me like I am. And we know it's a clear violation of biblical principles. 
then we got to deal with that. There's a quick way to end this process, and that is repentance. That's the beauty of repentance and forgiveness. It's highly unlikely. So in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, look, there was someone brought up for church discipline, highly unlikely that it was the individual in 1 Corinthians 5 who was guilty of this horrible sexual immorality that the church just affirmed. Paul said, the world doesn't even agree with this, and you're putting up with it. What is wrong with you? So in 2 Corinthians, this is probably someone else, and Paul said, now, this person was brought up for discipline. The majority of you agreed. He's repented. You need to let him back in. It was past time to let him back in. So fourth, that's what we're dealing with in this one. The goal of church discipline is repentance, forgiveness, restoration, 2 Corinthians 2, 6 through 11. Sort of a little bit of overlap in the text in these last two. So this goes all the way back to the beginning of the sermon. The cycle of repentance and forgiveness. What about a person who keeps on sinning in the same way and says every time, I repent? I don't know. That's not easy. That's, that's not easy because Jesus said, forgive them how many times? He's not going to hold us to a higher standard than he holds himself. But you know what? We don't usually find that, do we? It's not a matter of a person doing that. Now, you do in your personal lives, but in church life, Someone who's called out on sin is not likely to keep on going in that particular sin and just keep saying, sorry, sorry, which seems really insincere. What an opportunity to show the gospel when someone repents and the congregation forgives. Last. The best way to avoid church discipline is self-examination and repentance in 1 Corinthians 1 or 1 Corinthians 11, 31 to 32. Paul said in verse 31, if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. Now, the context of 1 Corinthians 11 is that Paul was speaking to individuals who had been disciplined by the Lord because the elders were participating in the exact same sin as the people of the church. When we come to the Lord's table in just a few minutes, 1 Corinthians 11 is all about the Lord's table. And he said, look, you are abusing this table in two ways. One, you're getting drunk on the communion wine. That wasn't grape juice. It was wine. You're getting drunk on the communion wine. So you're making a mockery of the body of Christ. Really? He said, then the other is they were all into the prosperity gospel where he was where, where people said, well, if God is blessing us materially, materially, surely he is happy with us. But the poor, well, God must be judging them. So it's wrong for us to bring our food to this potluck and then have us share it with people that God is judging. If God is judging you, then I surely can't. And Paul's like, really? Come on. Again, it's like, you're doing this. That's why some of you are sick and some of you have already died. It was a serious business. 
was a serious sin against the body. Now, you hear pastors preach 1 Corinthians 11, and you say, oh, I struggle with my sin. You know the sin that I struggled with this past week, so I better not take communion. No, he's talking specifically about those sins. There is no place better than to sense the forgiveness of the Lord than right here in this place. When you repent, he forgives. Well, when we come to the table, after we read these last verses, then we will examine ourselves before partaking of the elements. For now, I'll read Titus 3, verses 12 to 15 to close out the book. No comments after the text. Just be blessed with the community of God's family that extends beyond our church to brothers and sisters around the world with whom we serve in the kingdom of God. When I send Artemis or Tychius to you, do your best to come to be at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves, our people, to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. And that's all we need to know about Titus. No, that's not even close to what we need to know about Titus. It is hopefully a good start. So as we prepare this morning uh, for the Lord's table, uh, those of you who are serving, stay where you are. I told you we would come up, but we've ran out of space on the front. I'm going to ask the worship team if they would come forward. And as they come, I'm going to give instructions for this time. We invite all who acknowledge Jesus as Savior and Lord to participate with us in this meal. This meal is designated for believers. If your hope is in heaven alone, then uh, your hope of heaven is in Jesus alone, then please join us whether you're a member here or not. We would be happy for you to join in this meal uh, with us. When it comes time for the congregation to participate, we're going to come up these interior aisles, and there'll be someone who will be helping you. Then you'll go back either up the middle or the outer aisles to your seat. Take one of these packets and um, just take it back to your seat, and you'll have time for reflection. The worship team will be playing. I'm going to serve them first, and after they come, then we will. I'll serve the servers, and we'll get started with the congregation. Uh, to set the table, I want to read 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three to 32. Don't usually read this much, but it talks about the Lord's discipline of his children. And it seems appropriate for today's text. And remember those things that I pointed out about people getting drunk and people withholding their food from uh, the poor. Paul said, for I received from the Lord... What I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I say it often, but we don't, we're not commanded to remember the carnation. We're not commanded uh, commanded to remember the, the resurrection of Jesus every Sunday or every time we come to this table. But we are commanded to remember his death. So appropriate that we sang all those songs about the cross this morning. And I've been thinking that's where the next series is going to be about the cross. It's just all going in my head this morning. So as we come to this table, we're remembering the price that Jesus paid for our redemption in sorrow for our sins, in grateful and gratitude for him, uh, dying for us in celebration of family life and, and anticipation of his return, as it says in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes or until he comes again. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and have died. And then verses 31 and 32. But if we judged ourselves... We would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. In verse um, 33 and 34, he says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment or about discerning who's spiritual and who's not. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. And I'm also going to go back to verses 17 and following because it all comes together. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. They used to come together for a, for a love feast, they called it. There would be a big meal. It's like a big potluck. So potlucks are biblical. Um, but sometime either before, during, or after the meal, they would stop and remember the Lord's death at the, at the supper, at the table. And Paul said, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. It's kind of the way Paul meant it to be heard. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And then he goes on to set the table. 
So I was reading Luke 6 yesterday morning. You know, in, in Matthew 5, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. But theirs is the kingdom of God. I think it's the kingdom of God that is theirs. In Luke 6, he says, Blessed are the poor. The poor recognize their need. The poor in the wallet and poor in spirit recognize their need. And Jesus, who was rich beyond comprehension, became poor so that we might in him become rich. All of that happened at the cross. That was the great exchange. He took our sins upon himself. And when we believe, when we repent and believe, we are credited with his righteousness. That's how we get into heaven, not by anything else. But that'll change you when you believe that. And what we do this morning is to affirm that belief again and again at this table. Father, as we come to this table, we recognize that we not only were sinful people before we were saved, but we still sin. And though we are righteous in Christ, our feet get dirty and need to be washed. And it's the one who died for us who washes our feet. We confess to you that we have sinned in thought, word, and deed. We have left things undone that ought to have been done. We have done things that no believer ought to do. Thank you for this meal that reminds us that you died for those sins. And Jesus, thank you for leaving the riches of heaven, becoming poor, living perfectly. And offering your body to be broken and beaten. Your blood to be spilled. As a propitiation for our sins. The father was pleased with your sacrifice. And therefore he is pleased with us. So it's this odd mixture. Of sorrow and repentance. Of gratitude. Of celebration and anticipation. We share this meal together. Thank you for this community. The body of Christ. Here today. In Jesus name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church. Located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content. To share with others. But please do not charge for those copies. Or alter the content in any way. Without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.